um, this um, on sermon preparation, and it wasn't coming together. It wasn't coming together. And uh, so if I preached this morning on that passage, you wouldn't have gotten a very good sermon. Not well thought out. So I'm not sure what it is, but um, I'll try again next week. But um, you do. I'm going to preach from Psalm chapter 8. And in a few minutes, um, when the sermon is done, I'm going to take an opportunity or ask you to take an opportunity to share with us and the goodness and the greatness of God and how one or both of those have been evidence in your life recently. Goodness and greatness of God. I should put that back down. On occasions where children are first learning how to pray, it's around the dinner table. And they often say rote prayers, and probably the most common one is this, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for this food. God is great, God is good. Children say that. It's a very simple statement, but it's one with, uh, that which people tend to make one of two errors. First, we don't believe it. Countless people over the centuries have struggled with this. Is God really both great and good? A few years back at a pastor's conference I went to, um, I connected with an old ministry colleague of mine whose 50-month-old son is going through another round of chemotherapy. So for him, if God is great and good, wouldn't he intervene? If he is good, wouldn't he want to intervene? How about ISIS or the earthquake in Japan? or starvation in parts of Africa. The fact that these things happen in our lives and across the world might convince us that God is either not good or either not great, but he's certainly not both. The second error, and probably a more common one for us Christians, is to just gloss over the truth that God is both great and good. We affirm it quickly, but don't slow down enough to really consider the incredible truth behind that statement. So we have a stunted experience of worship and a diminished understanding of God's love for us and only partial surrender of ourselves to God. And as a result, we are not anywhere close to what Jesus called fullness of life. So... Is God both great and good? And if so, what does that mean for us? So that's what we're thinking about today. And we're going to be led in our thinking by Psalm 8. Read for us uh, by tomorrow, just a moment ago. Um, Psalm 8 is traditionally ascribed to King David of Israel, who lived about 1,000 B.C. And the word psalm, by the way, just means... um, Lyrics to a tune, lyrical song. And the Psalms were originally written to be sung 
primarily in the context of public worship. So in our hymns and songs, we're just carrying on a millennia-old tradition of God's people worshiping and praying by singing. And in this particular psalm, Psalm 8, God's people reflect on his goodness and his greatness and marvel that such a God is intimately acquainted with humanity in general and with individuals in particular. The words that David began the psalm with are familiar. We still sing them, sometimes even today. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You has set your glory above the heavens. This is a declaration of the greatness of God. God is infinitely great. His glory transcends that of all other so-called gods, nations, and beings. The Lord is to other gods what war and peace is to green eggs and ham. What this Messiah is to, for he's a jolly good fellow. What the Taj Mahal is to a leaky pup tent. And what the sun is to a candle. God is just so much more than anything or anyone else that exists. He is, will always be, eternally, Lord of history, Lord of the cosmos, Lord of everything. And the Bible is full of images and statements about the greatness of God. In several places, including Daniel 10 and Revelation 10, there are descriptions of angels, heavenly beings with faces like the sun, clothed in rainbows and clouds, voices like trumpets and thunder, whose very presence overwhelms and strikes fear into the hearts of all who see them. But even these overwhelmingly glorious creatures are God's servants at his beck and call, and they fall down before the throne of God and worship him in humility. That's how great God is. By the will of God and the word of God, the heavens and the earth exist. He spoke stars, seas, and mountains into existence and created the almost infinitely complex Adam. That's how great God is. When he descended on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, before the nation of Israel, he did so in fire and smoke, trumpet blast and thunder, and the whole mountain trembled. His glory so terrified the people that they dared not approach the mountain. Psalm 97, the poetry of Psalm 97 says that the glory of God melts the mountains. They melt like wax in his very presence. Psalm 18, that he rides the storm clouds like a chariot. In the book of Exodus, God crushes the Egyptian pantheon of gods with a series of plagues that devastate the country. Israel is freed from slavery. God proceeds to care for them by parting the sea so they can cross on dry land. He provides water in the desert, food for a million people, protection from attacking armies. God raises up nations, some of the greatest nations in history, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and uses them for his own good purposes. That's how great God is. And this is the God that we worship here on this day. 
So we come in, in humility and awe and even fear. So God is great. Nor is he some, some supreme but impersonal force. I read an interview, interview with Paul McCartney, and in that interview he said that he didn't consider himself religious or believe in God, but rather in forces of good and evil. I've heard others talk about fate or the universe itself that governs things with a will. Um, I'm not sure how you can have will without personality. I'm not sure how you, you can define good and evil apart from personality. If there is a supreme force that governs the universe, we can be sure that it is a personal being. The first line is Psalm. O Lord, our Lord. You notice in our English Bibles that the two words, Lord and Lord, O Lord, our Lord, look different. One of them is written in all capital letters. Yeah, that's the way our English Bibles translate the Hebrew name, Yahweh, or sometimes Jehovah, God's name. Okay? Yahweh is God's personal name. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses has his uh, famous encounter with God at the burning bush. And God says to Moses, I am sending you to Egypt, and through you I will deliver my people Israel from slavery. And Moses, hesitant, says, well, when I talk to the elders of Israel and say, God sent me, and they say, what's his name? What shall I tell them? See, in Egypt, we're familiar with a lot of gods, Ammon, Re, Horus. So to come and say, God sent me, that's not good enough. Which God? And God's answer to Moses is, tell them, Yahweh sent me. Yahweh means I am. It represents God's eternal being, that he is self-existent that he depends on nothing for his existence and therefore can never not exist. So God reveals himself as a God with the name I am, Yahweh. So when you see the Lord in your Bible, written in capital letters, that is God's name, Yahweh. Then you also have Lord with only a capital L and lowercase, O-R-D, which is a translation of the Hebrew word Adonai, which means... Lord means sovereign, master, one of authority. So, O Lord, our Lord means O Yahweh, our sovereign Lord. And it pairs the idea of God's sovereignty, that he reigns over all, and his personality. Not only is there a God who is supreme and over all, but we know his name. We can call him by name. Just as I can say, Kara is my wife, you can say, Ken is our pastor, we can say, Yahweh is our Lord. The Lord is a personal God, not, not distant, not aloof, but he has made himself known. He has, as it were, introduced himself to us. So God is infinitely, infinitely great, and he is personal. And he is good. Verse 3 begins, when I consider your heavens. 
let's consider the heavens for a moment. I've done this before. I find it in, incomprehensible, the size of the heavens. So the speed of light is 186,000 miles or 300,000 kilometers per second. So if you are traveling at that speed, you can certainly circle the earth seven times in one second. Traveling out from the earth, you pass the moon in two seconds. Mars in about four minutes. And Pluto, our farthest planet, in about four and a half hours. In just over four years, you get to the next closest star. At that speed, you make it across our galaxy in about two, uh, two million years. And there are galaxies that are apparently 13 billion years away. And remember that in every second of those 13 billion years, you travel 300,000 kilometers. And here we humans, micro-nothings, cling to a speck of cosmic dust in one of 10 billion galaxies, do you feel insignificant? Well, don't. Don't feel insignificant because in the vastness of this universe, the God who holds it in his hand together by the word of his power and that through the word of his power, it continues to function. This God is particularly interested in one aspect of, the, of this creation. He's interested in it all, but particularly in one aspect, you, man, humanity. Not just interested in us as a race, but in each one of us as people. He knows our names. He knows our lives. He knows the myriad of emotions, uh, myriad of moments that make up our lives, the, event, the, uh, the events, the emotions, the crises, the joys, and he pays close attention to us. Some of you are wondering about your jobs and your future. Others are concerned with your kids. Others have health issues, employment issues, relational issues. And others are content and at peace. But whatever your situation, the great God of the heavens is near, so near that if he were a physical being, you could hear his breathing closer than the air around me, the song says. And who are we that God should be so attentive to us? Well, we're his beloved creation, created for relationship with him. The Bible uses three relationships to describe what our relationship with God is to be like. Friendship, parent-child, and marriage. And our relationship with God is, is all of these at once, at their most int intimate and at their best. In the creation accounts in the book of Genesis, we read that humanity was created in God's image. We're a special creation, and giving a unique place in creation, the place of lordship. 
And God created man to rule over creation, not to exploit, but to steward it. God gave us glory, and we can rightly consider ourselves the pinnacle of creation. Um, going to read Psalm, if I can find it, Psalm 8, verses 3 to 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and all that swim the paths of the sea. Man having dominion over the earth. God entrusting to us what he has made. Of course, as we look around, we don't see this as our reality. The book of uh, New Testament in the book of Hebrews says this. It quotes Psalm 8, which I just read, and then it says, In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. And that's true. Things are not as they should be. Ever since Adam and Eve's rejection of God in Eden, all creation has suffered. Not only human character and sin, like gossip, hatred, war, crime, abuse, and the like, but also things, things like cancer and famine and destruction, like earthquake. The world is different because of sin. And with our fall, everything that we are, we are responsible for is affected. Romans chapter 8 talks about all creation groaning and longing for the redemption of mankind. So things are not right. But guess, guess what God did? He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, from heaven to earth to deal with the problem of sin. Okay, Jesus became one of us, born as a human baby, living the human experience, in order that as our representative, he could die for our sin. He uniformly did, spoke, and thought what was right. He is the perfect man. He is the man. And the story of the Bible is that in Jesus, God is working redemption. The life of Jesus, his birth at Christmas, his death and resurrection, these are the defining points of history. The point I wish there was a cosmic shift toward wholeness again. Jesus died for our sins and earning for us forgiveness and a restored relationship as a friend, as a child, as a spouse to God. By Jesus' resurrection, he conquered death and guaranteed that God's work of redemption would be brought to completion. So the writer to Hebrews says 
that at present we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In Jesus Christ, humans are reconciled to relationship with God and ultimately, at the end of the day, given dominion over a new heaven and a new earth. And so the elevated position of man that the psalm writer talks about is realized in Christ. And because of Christ, it becomes our reality as well. So what are we that God is mindful of us? Let me tell you how much God is mindful of you, how much he is interested in you, how much he cares about your redemption. The Bible says that the definitive demonstration of God's love is the death of his own son. Listen to this. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Romans, God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. First John, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And from the cross, the Bible draws a straight line to the cross, from the cross, to the love God has for us. A straight line from the death of Jesus to God's love for us. How do we know that God loves us? Jesus died. That's how we know. I said at the beginning that people fall into two errors about the twin truth that God is both great and he is good. And one is we tend not to believe it. If God was good, he would want to fix things, redeem things. If God were great, he'd be able to do it. And God is good. The God, of Bible, the God of the Bible cares deeply about you and about this world. He desperately wants to redeem things. He too knows that sickness and death, war and famine, loneliness and grief are not how things should be. And he can and is doing something about it. The world is in process of redemption. And he has guaranteed a future where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The God that people long for is the God who is there. So we can't afford, we can't afford not to believe that God, God is great and good. The other error, as I said, is that we don't really think about it. We don't really think about it long enough to let it, let it make a difference in our lives. And so that's what I want to challenge you with this morning. If God is great, then it's appropriate to submit to his lordship. God has told us what is right and wrong. He's told us how to live fully. Hence his commands to have honesty and self-sacrifice, self generosity, love, humility, sexual purity, purity, integrity of character, and so on. 
and he created you. So it makes sense to recognize his lordship and to obey him, to order your life accordingly. If God is good, then we are secure in our relationship to him. He will only ever ask of us what is best for us. So his commands are not to deprive us of life, but to do good in our lives. To walk in God's ways are not sacrificed, but the road to blessing. Like the parents who says to their child to do their homework or check before crossing the street or to have respect for your teachers or your parents. You're not, as parents, setting them up for a life that is less fulfilling but more fulfilling. And to walk in God's ways is like that, except that usually there's an instant payoff. Satisfaction in taking the high road Benefits of wisdom in your decision, avoiding the consequences of a lack of wisdom. God is great. God is good. You are secure in a God who is strong. You worship a God who is loving. God is big enough to hold the universe in his hands, and he's small enough to know and care for every detail of your life. And so to put ourselves in his hands is both right and good. So do you want a life that is best, full, perhaps difficult? God never said he would make it easy. It's hard to learn. It's hard to get in shape. But do you want a life that is ultimately satisfying? There's only one way to get it from the one who is great and good, one who is all power and the giver of life. There's only one way to get it, and that's through God in Christ Jesus. Amen. It's quarter to 12, and we want to take some time to um, share with the congregation if God's greatness or goodness has meant something particular to you in the last month or two, okay? Last little while. How has God shown his greatness to you and how has it impacted your life? How has God shown his goodness and care for you? And how has that impacted your life? So, who wants to share? Mary Lou.